Podcastle 338 for November 19th, 2014. Burying the Coin by Setsu Uzume. Rated R contains violence, some of it pretty haunting. Hello and welcome to Podcastle, where we bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor, riding atop the Zeppelin today. We have a very special treat for you this week. Not only is it one of our rare Podcastle originals, that is, a story that's never been published before, but it's also a steampunk story, where the brass is a little more tarnished and doesn't have that gleam that we've come to expect from the genre. It's a swashbuckler, to be sure, but what I love about this story is that it's not just dressing up with a nice hat. Steampunk, at least steampunk stories, I realize there's a whole movement behind steampunk, can often be pretty and polished, and despite their name, kind of pro-establishment. Not so punk, if you understand what I mean. This story does a little bit to try to put the punk back into steampunk. Show that the brass isn't always so polished, the leather a bit frayed, and people and their morality, well, they aren't always black and white. Podcastle is very proud to present Burying the Coin by Setsu Uzume. This story, as I said, is a Podcastle original. Setsu Uzume is an expat New Yorker who spent her formative years in and out of dojos, She's also trained in a monastery in rural China, studying Taoism and swordplay. While she was dabbled in many arts, only writing and martial arts seem to have stuck. You can visit her blog at katanapen.wordpress.com or tweet to her at katanapen. Your narrator this week is our old friend Amanda Fitzwater. Since Amanda worked as sound producer here for us, she's gone on to attend Clarion in San Diego, has sold stories to Andromeda Spaceways In-Flight magazine in Betwixt, and has a story in this year's Heiresses of Russ. You can read her blog, pickledthink.blogspot.com, and follow her on Twitter at Amanda Fitzwater. She lives in Christchurch, New Zealand. So climb out into the rigging and enjoy the story. Burying the Coin by Setsu Uzume. The captain has ordered that I stay on the airship and wait in his office as usual, but that's all right. Today's the day I betray my captain. If he takes the bait, I'll be free. He'll be in jail and I'll be free. I'll lay everything out like an afterthought and pretend I haven't been lying for the last year. Captain Urkon Grell strides into the small office, slides out of his coat and tosses it at me. I hang it up, careful to smooth out the soft fabric before I move on to other tasks. He settles into his chair and regards the news pamphlet I put on his desk. The headline celebrates a hegemony victory over a new colony and halfway down there's a photograph of the three owners of Montglass Inc., In bold letters it reads, First Family of the Skies. My palms are sweating. I open the drapes near the sideboard and see the port shrinking as we ascend. The rest of the landscape is green and mountainous, cut off from the world. 
I squeeze the curtains to dry my hands and hope he doesn't notice. Montglass supplies ships to our beloved hegemony military now. Do you know how they earn such success, Corellia? Cunning and precision, Captain. Correct. Even the way they present themselves. Cunning and precision, finesse and grace. That's why Zellenrid Aeronautics is never in the papers. Tiny upstarts in war-torn parts of the world make for unremarkable news. I pour him a drink and place it on his desk, then return to the sideboard to bring over the late supper the steward prepared. I barely have my hands on the silver tray when he speaks again. Corellia, this paper is nearly three weeks old. Why is it on my desk? I set the tray with his supper down just to the side of the paper. My apologies, Captain. I'll remove it right away. I reach for the paper and his hand slaps mine into the wood. My index finger presses to one of the smaller front page articles, just a few lines of text under this title, Colonial Auction. The very auction where I've asked detail men to meet and deliver Grell to the law once and for all. With his other hand, he picks up the paper and looks at it. He releases me, and I step back from him and clasp my hands behind my back, wiping his touch from my skin. Treasures of the South to be returned to civilization, he reads. Personal effects mostly. Worthless, yet irreplaceable, I say. The next page had a photograph of some of the choice items, including a heart-shaped locket. The listing says it plays music when you open it. He glosses over the article that caught his eye weeks ago, reporting one of our more profitable raids as rebel activity. Grell had always preferred smuggling over politics, but the price on his head rose regardless. I watch him consider the bait. I seem to recall a painting in miniature on the desk of Zellenrid's top engineer. A young lady was wearing this piece. Sentiment weighs more than gold, correct? If you went in the night before as a prospective buyer, you could switch it out with a fake. I lower my voice just so. We must show them the lengths to which we will go for them personally. Perhaps a gift of his daughter's necklace might demonstrate our sincerity. You've said before, good allies show good faith. That's hard to come by when you act outside of hegemony control. Indeed. Grell carefully places the paper back on the table and then presses it with his fingertips. And what kind of faith do you show with this elaborate farce? The tiny office seems to close in on us, and the cloying sandalwood smell chokes me. The longer I'm silent, the more his black eyes bore into me. He's thinking of locking me in the crate again. I can't let that happen. I hold perfectly still. Did you prepare an explanation for why you waited this long to tell me about the auction? I'm about to offer a weak reply when I see her, beyond him and through the window. A girl leans on the railing and stares at me. She stands on twisted, broken legs 
and one of her eyes is rolled up into her head. The threat in Grell's voice snaps me back into the office. Karelia Nia, finesse is seamless grace, not empty complexities. I taught you better than this. I will discuss Selenrid with the officers tonight, and you will serve us while we talk. Grell shoves the silver tray back toward me, and burning sauce splashes my wrist. He tosses the old print into the stew. Take this away, and bring me a more recent paper. Fuel regulations and Montglass's impending monopoly are discussed at length over dinner. The hegemony controls the sky through strict monitoring of fuel consumption. Getting a contract with Zellenrid would mean freedom from the hegemony's regulations. Captain Grell would have more mobility and less scrutiny than any other ship in the world. Tell them what you saw in the paper, Nia, says Grell. I try to pretend nothing is riding on this, that I hadn't been stealing from the steward, that the detail men don't know will be there, the locket, a gesture of good faith. We could have a fake made and switch them. The grizzled faces of the officers around the captain's table remain stern despite the gaslight's efforts to cast a soft glow about the cabin. The quartermaster and the first officer lean forward over their greasy, empty plates. The steward and engineer raise their brows and avert their eyes from me, as though I were a naughty child acting out in public. The captain says nothing. The only sounds are the engines thrumming and sails flapping as we cruise through the moonless sky. One man could do it, certainly no more than two, I say. Quick, quiet, in and out. The captain would go, of course. He would slip into the auction house with the first officer, like he always does, and charm his way through the theft. But he wouldn't come back to brag this time. Hegemony law enforcement would be waiting. They'd be waiting for me too, as soon as I snuck off the ship and escaped with them to collect my reward. My own ship. Freedom at last. I expect Captain Grell to shush me and take credit for the idea, but he doesn't this time. He taps two well-manicured fingernails on the linen tablecloth and glances up at the first officer. Karelia will accompany me. You and the rest of the men stay aboard the ship. We'll stop at Tavriti Station and have the fake made tomorrow, and then off to auction. Me, sir? I say. Your idea? Your mission. Let's see how well you manage it, Grell says. My stomach turns to ice. He'll know for sure now. In the year, second watch is the best time to slip down to the underside of the ship. We bank starboard to avoid a swath of clouds. One outstretched wisp slips across the deck, and quick as a whisper, I follow it overboard. The ropes scrape at my fingers, but the thought of being cut up by them is laughable now. Every time I had done something wrong, Grell had me run up into the rigging and tie off the lines. My hands were mincemeat for the first year or so, and I would wake up in tears from the soreness in arms and shoulders. Beatings were too crude for Grell. 
a sharp tongue and starvation were more to his taste. Besides, it would take me too long to heal. I learned to fly for my dinner. He made me fear failing more than falling. I improved, I'll grant him that, but I stopped believing him when he said he would take me on a mission. I crawl across the hull to the aft, tugging on the ropes as I go. I need to cut three in long enough lengths that the detailmen will see them through a spyglass at night. That doesn't leave much room for error, especially if I want to climb back up. If Grell taught me anything, it was finesse. The range, the track, the bridge, the rigging. I felt like a prize pony on a lunge line. No mistakes, Corellia. Three millimetres off target, Corellia. Aim for the face, Corellia. Climb faster, Corellia. He chanted trite phrases, pretending they were idioms from his Quechua ancestors. Listening gives you an advantage. Talking throws it to others. Gold is born from the earth and returns there in dead hands. He loved that one. Gold is born, gold returns. He would never say, you can't take it with you, like everyone else did. He talked about gold all the time, but he thought it was bad luck to hoard it. A coin in the hand is a knife in the back. Envy and murder are old friends, Corellia. Never hold a coin in your hand for too long. I believed that he could do anything, and he tried to make me forget that I could too. I feel along a length of rope, shift my body just to the right of it, and saw at it until the fibres fray and it drops. The netting jerks to one side. I tug at it a bit before moving further aft to make sure I have a secure route. I slice the second rope and it drops easily without much tug. I don't find a good place to cut the third until I'm almost all the way aft. I hook my knees in the rope and let go. I dangle for a moment, then swing up and grab the rope net. My legs slip free and I dangle that way. Stretching feels good. Even with miles between me and the ground, that feels safer than the crate. I clamber up over the curve of the hull and hear the click and whir of the rudder, responding to the helmsman far above. Five years ago, this would have terrified me to be out here, but tonight, it just sounds like something's grinding in the rudder stock that shouldn't be. I glance down at the dangling rope, remembering the first time I had to fix a steering problem by myself. We had been hired for a light run, bringing spices from Chalapur back to the west. Captain Grell once told me that in this part of the world, children were cheaper than spices. By the time we had the cargo loaded, a bunch of slum kids had clambered onto the hull to play. They got one warning to get off, and they didn't listen. Three of the men gunned them down as we took flight. Twenty minutes later, we had no pitch. I was the best climber, so Grell had ordered me to check on the rudder and tiller and take care of it. There was a kid out there. She was tangled in the auxiliary tiller ropes, broken arm, broken leg by the way they twisted. She was still alive, and the wind was fierce. I couldn't get close enough to free her by hand. Her struggling made the tangle worse, so I shot her. 
The first bullet hit her just above the eye. The second cut the primary rope that held her up, and the third shot cut her loose. The wind yanked her to the filthy city below. A minute later, the ropes fell free. I remember standing there, watching the ropes flapping in the gale. I was 13, and that was the first time I had shot a person. There had to have been a better way. It had taken three bullets rather than one. It wasn't until her body was long gone that I started to see her. She kept cropping up, one eye rolled up under the putrefying wound in her head. She always stood on twisted, broken limbs. I kept seeing her until she told me we were the same. She could have been me. I cut the third rope and begin the climb back up the main deck. I'll be 17 soon, old enough to know that Grell had made me a killer the moment he strapped the guns to my belt. He shook my hand and slapped my shoulder, smearing me with blood that I couldn't see until now. I think Grell knows about the ghosts and the stains. He was just waiting for me to see them too. I tell myself that he'll understand. Grell and I sleep while the crew flies us to the southern coastal region of the Western Territories, a pastoral treasure far from the sprawling cities at the heart of hegemony lands. We arrive when the morning is still dark. The ship drops into a wheat field where the indentured farmer who lives up the way has been paid for his silence. Grell and I slip into bright formal silk waistcoats. I've worn men's clothes since he bought me. And prepare to meet the auction house's proprietor. He'll be expecting us. Or... Grell, at least. If Grell taught me nothing else, it was to watch for mistakes. Mistakes haunt like ghosts, following you and chaining you to your failures forever. I slip my gun belt around my waist, sliding the two revolvers into place. I watch Grell do the same. I still remember the day he had given these to me. I was eleven and so proud of myself. I had no idea what he'd done to me, even two years later when I finally used them. As I pass the steward's office, I see the correspondence piled up on his desk. I couldn't have arranged this without his carelessness. My plan had two parts, removing Grell and assuring my own escape. The hegemony wanted Grell arrested and their obvious desire made them easy to woo. Devising a code and a reliable contact was simple and required only a few months' patience. As for my escape, that required not only a physical extrication, but a safe place to go to ground once I was out from under Grell's boot. I wanted my own ship from Montglass, so I'd have to offer them something substantial as well. Then it fell into my hands. The key to their last remaining rival... Zellenrid Aeronautics. Grell's contacts were laundering money for Zellenrid's primary backers. By midday meal, all the sentimental gifts in the world wouldn't buy Grell an exclusive contract. Zellenrid would no longer exist, the hegemony gets their bandit, Montglass gets their monopoly, and I get my freedom. Good allies show good faith. 
I knew I would be proving myself when the plan goes into play, but I had planned to be far away where I couldn't get caught. Captain Grell has held me back a thousand times before. I don't know what changed. If he had shown that he trusted me a month ago, a week ago, I would have stayed. Now it's too late. I don't know which one of us is the bigger fool. The farmer whose field we're landing brings horses for us. We have one hour until dawn. I sweat despite the cool mists and the crickets are deafening. We arrive at the auction house within 20 minutes. The only other buildings for miles cluster around this spot. A night stay, a bar, a dance hall. In the dim lantern light I see people I know. Constables pretending to be groundskeepers. They frown for just a moment, recognising me. I'm not supposed to be here. I wonder if, when the time comes, they'll take Grell alive or dead. I wonder if those orders now apply to me. I'm sure they do. The slum girl must have arrived ahead of us, whispering to the guards what I'd done to her and what I was about to do to my captain. We dismount onto a gravel road and step through the gardens on a stone path leading to the auction house. Grell squeezes my shoulder and gives me an almost fatherly look. Calm down, he seems to say. You'll give the game away. Oh, Captain, I can't find it in my heart to be calm. Or sorry. We trot up the steps between two green-veined marble columns and the proprietor meets us at a stained-glass door. Captain Grell extends his compliments on the azaleas outside. The proprietor trills his modest gratitude and leads us in. The first room is the conservatory, a long hall with huge urns lining each wall. Glass doors, glass ceiling, gold filigree and fragrant flowers everywhere. Gas lights hang like glowing bubbles from above. The sweet scent of chambelli blossoms and pink feather hearts make my head throb. Grell's talking to the proprietor, and I can't lift my eyes off the huge black and white tiles. I have to stifle a laugh. I am walking into my own trap, and I'll either die a pawn or come out a queen. A knight would have the sense to slip out to the side. I'm a little sad I couldn't tell him about my plan for tonight. He would have appreciated its genius. Maybe he does know, and invited me along just to spoil it. The conservatory narrows into a small hall to a back gallery behind the showroom, where the various works of art, intricate devices and foreign plunder wait to be snatched up by the wealthy. Grell and the proprietor laugh like old school friends, while the proprietor produces a crystal bottle from the chaos of beautiful objects. Grell's clothes are tighter than necessary. His coat buttons glint in the candlelight as he gestures, knowing his beauty lies in movement. I smell his beloved floral notes in the whiskey when the proprietor pours a glass for each of them. The proprietor stares at Grell, and I curse myself for not knowing this detail. Grell playing on secret once again. If I hadn't seen the captain with women, I would have doubted his preferences. He knew mine before I did. I think he refused to hire any other women as deckhands purely to frustrate me. No companion but him. No distractions from my training. 
I had become one of the men without having to endure the awkwardness of boyhood. Grell and the proprietor finally put their glasses down and look at a painting of some battle. Grell has him entirely engrossed. I should play along, but I don't. I can't pay attention. What other details does he know that I don't? I look at the two guards in here with us. Grell has his back to them, totally relaxed. The guards look straight ahead. The captain and the proprietor laugh together, and one guard clenches his jaw. Do they know the plan? Does Grell suspect? Am I showing my hand? The thing was already in motion. I look for the locket. I see a bell jar on a pedestal in the centre of the room. There's an engine part on it. It looks absurd there, shining and unused, like a sledgehammer on the Queen's lap. My throat is dry as rope. I look at Grell's glass. A few drops gleam amber, reflecting the mahogany table. The whole room's soft plush interior suffocates me. Overstuffed velvet, fine crystal glasses, expensive spirits, and carpeting so soft I feel embarrassed each time my grimy boots sink into it. It's too much. My attention splinters on every detail instead of honing in on what's relevant, what's important. I hate the stuffy charade. Once I have my own ship, I will never have to do this again. I could warn Grell. He's been in tighter spots than this. He could get us both out, probably in time to get to Zellenrid and warn them about what was coming, to warn the official to hide her books. We could help set them up somewhere else too, with new suppliers willing to work outside the government regulations. Start over. But then, Grell would want to know how I knew about all this. The prospect of dying in a crate rises up to swallow me. I step backward and bump my rear against the edge of a long, dusty table. I've drawn attention to myself. Grell sees and compensates. They move on to examine a portrait. Grell urges the proprietor to give his thoughts on the piece, quizzing him. I turn away from them and walk slowly around each of the three long tables at the other side of the room, playing my part. Where is that confounded locket? I cross the room and see it on a table, tagged and laid out with a dozen other pieces. It's gold. The fake we made is polished brass. A trained ape would know the difference. I should leave now, before it's too late. Make something up. Run! Karelia! Grell snaps at me. I look up. Grell holds his gun to the proprietor's shiny pate. The guard's pistols clatter to the floor. I look at Grell, startled that we've arrived at this stage already. He knows something is wrong. Have you wandered off in the thick of it, girl? He says. Let's do what we came here to do, shall we? The switch. My own plan gone awry. I had emphasised that the transition should be as seamless as possible, and I'm not sure which one of us even has the fake. I wander over and pluck the locket from the table. I fish around in my pocket for the brass copy and find it. A bit late to bother with that, mutters Grell. I leave the fake in my pocket and stow the real necklace in there with it. The real one is much heavier. Grell nods towards the window. 
I circle the room, gathering up the guards' pistols, and take them to the window. I open it with sweaty fingers, flip the cylinder release on each gun, and shake the bullets out into the garden. I drop the empty guns outside, and they thump to the earth below. Only now do I realise that neither Grell nor I were asked to surrender our weapons when we came inside. That's quite a detail to miss. If either of us drew our guns, the detailmen wouldn't bother with a trial. The guards looked tense, but not upset or surprised. They were expecting us. Does Grell notice any of this? He gives me a quick nod and gestures towards the door. He's got a gun out. I don't. Maybe if I keep my hands empty, the detailman won't... Watch our backs, Grell murmurs. Grell strong-arms the proprietor to walk out ahead of us. Some prank cowed won't shut up. I feel my heart in my throat as I grip my pistols. I slip them free of their holsters. I should have been watching for more guards, but I can't look away from Grell. He moves with a dancer's grace. I've hated him for so long, I'd forgotten why I admired him in the first place. He has his back to me. I could present the detailman with a corpse, but I don't want him dead. Grell keeps his composure. His voice never rises above conversational tones with the terrified proprietor. He walks him back across the conservatory. Every flower disturbed by a breath of air sets me on edge. My arms and shoulders ache with stress. They nearly creak as I sweep the guns back and forth. I almost fire twice, forgetting myself. The lanterns are bright inside and the moths drum against the glass. We are completely exposed. We're almost back across the black and white tiles, and I still don't know whose side I'm on. The rules change if you cross the board, don't they? How much time did I have left to decide? It's still too dark to see beyond the glass. The doors stand just ahead of us. The proprietor struggles, blubbering about paying us off for his life, never mind the locket. There now, my good fellow, we're almost out of this. Once we're clear of the compound's defences, I'll be happy to place your fate back in your hands at no cost. It is pitch black beyond the few colourless panes of glass in the garden doors. Corellia, dear, said Grell. The lanterns outside have gone out. He smells a rat. He's going to spin and shoot me. If there were nothing to fear and we walked back to the ship, if we got out of here, I'd lose any credibility I built with my contacts beyond the ship. Zelenrid would have been destroyed for nothing. I'd have to start all over. The doors, love, if you please. His voice is still level. If the hegemony forces want to imprison me along with Grell, what charge could they lay at my feet? Accessory to theft? That was the only thing they could prove. I had never gone out with the men on missions, legitimate or otherwise. They kept me behind to watch the ship with the coward engineer. Then another traitorous thought. Maybe Grell had been holding me back to keep my hands clean, to protect me. If we go to prison together... Would he feel the same way? I hook my little finger over the curved door handle. My palms ache as I squeeze my pistols. I force my hands to relax. I look up, and there she is, through the glass. One eye rolled up at a strange angle, while the other looks right at me. The slum girl stands on broken legs and stares at me. 
I tell myself I cannot be accused of murder. No one knows that I shot her, not even Grell. My incompetence with that kill was an embarrassment. That's why she's here. Something is going to go wrong and she wants to be here to see it. The door latch clicks open, but I can't move. It's silent beyond. She scared the crickets away. Go on, darling. I'm sure this gentleman is eager to resume his mourning, says Grell behind me. His voice is soft, reassuring. I was so used to being threatened by him, it felt like being pat with the flat of a knife. I hate him. He taught me that murder is a matter of course. I can't shoot him. Shooting Grell would make me like him. Selling him would make me rich. I have to earn this victory. I have to outdo him so spectacularly that he'll be out of my life forever. I have to call down an entire government on his head. Our heads. I am an idiot. No way but forward now. I slowly pull both doors open. I must face the ghost. Grell was here. If I couldn't take her down, he could. We are unstoppable. We step out into the garden. Drop your weapons, comes a voice from the darkness. I must decline, Grell replies. I don't raise my pistols. Could be the local patrol, could be groundsmen. Maybe the hegemony hadn't sent the detailmen. Look alive, darling, Grell murmurs. Urcon Grell, you are under arrest for embezzlement, grand larceny, murder, sedition and... A boot scuffs the gravel between the garden and the road. Trespassing. I can tell Grell has tightened his grip on the proprietor by the little yelp the man makes. Pitch blackness drapes the garden. Our eyes haven't adjusted yet. My chest feels so tight, I think I shall never draw breath again. Then a manic thrill creeps in underneath it. The rustling breeze chills my face, heavy with floral perfume. A second later, the sweet, earthy smell of horses surrounds us. In the next moment, I will either be very wealthy or quite dead. Grell speaks again. I will remove this gentleman from the mortal coil unless you... Torches flare. First two, then eight, then more. But the two had been enough. There were at least 40 detailmen arrayed around the garden, bristling with rifles. A dozen or more on horseback. A coach looms behind them, hitched to a team of four horses. A prison wagon. The corporal shouts my name. Karelia Niya? Here, I say. The word slips out of me as though it was spoken by someone else. It is the traitor, not me. In the torchlight, I can pick out the each detailman's face under their caps. Many of them couldn't have been much older than me. Sacrifices for tomorrow's glorious press. Beautiful boys for beautiful caskets. I want to tell Grell what's happening. I had intended for him to find out, to rub his face in it. But not while he's armed and behind me. Put down your weapons and bring us the locket. Do it, ca- I lower my arms just a moment before Grell tells me to. He cuts himself off. I have given myself away. I obeyed the corporal before waiting for Grell's command and they knew exactly what we had taken. He knows. Worse, he was willing to give up the prize to keep us safe. 
I didn't expect that. That was the moment the slum girl disappeared. Grill's silk sleeve whispers as he shifts his aim to my back. I dive to the right, two shots fire. My arm rips open. I hit the grass. Detailmen stampede past me and gunfire explodes above me. The proprietor screams. My face is wet. Hold! shouts the corporal. We take him alive. Grill barks profanity at the detailman and I glance back over my shoulder. I blink my own blood from my eyelashes. Grell's shirt is bloody. Someone had shot him in the shoulder and the leg. Faceless officers haul him to his feet. The proprietor sobs. The searing pain in my left arm seems distant. I risk a look. I can't tell if the bullet has struck bone or gone all the way through. There might be a chunk missing. I don't know. I can't bring myself to investigate the mess of flesh and silk. Heavy padlocks clink shut on an iron bar to hobble Grell. His chains rattle. They toss him into the prison cart. I try to feel remorse, but I can't feel anything. Maybe they've forgotten I'm still here. Leather dusters whirl about me like bat's wings, and detail men lift me to my feet. I feel fingers dig into the gash in my arm, and I squeal. One detail man recoils, and the throbbing softens. He looks at his hand, makes a face, and then bends to wipe it in the grass. Dental with her, Adams. We have our quarry, said the corporal. Bring her here. The bat shove me towards the corporal. He sits high on his horse, my nose level with his calf. Miss Niyar, you missed your rendezvous. We were worried. His horse pulls at the bit, and the corporal tugs the rein to still the animal. I am Corporal Lyle Manfred. I have been instructed to take you with us as a precaution. Doubtless your former crew will be looking for you. The corporal beckons a bat, who turns me so my left side is under the torchlight. He peels the fabric away from my shoulder and determines that the wound can wait. Someone barks orders to see the proprietor home and close up the auction house until further notice. They lift me and I ride with the corporal back to town. For reasons I cannot fathom, we ride next to the prison cart. Grell is silent within. The barred window is too small for me to see him. We reach town and the rising sun is behind us. My shoulder is a lash of raw, screaming, bleeding flesh that feels four times its size. I spend all my energy trying not to scream until I hear a whistle from within the cart. Grell stares up at me fingers curling around the bars. One of his hands disappears and comes back with a gold coin. Gold starts in the earth, Corellia, he says, and he lets go. I watch a wheel grind the coin into the mud. I look back at Grell and he smiles at me, dashing, even behind bars. Nothing like a dear friend to send you to your grave. I'd seen enough of his chicanery to know that smile was real. He meant to kill me. That was the last time I saw him. The hegemony kept all their promises. I have my own ship. And Grill will be doing hard time in a vanadium mine until his tongue turns green and falls out of his head. A few weeks after I got rid of the brass locket, the real one showed up in a parcel from Corporal Manfred, accompanied by a formal letter of gratitude. I split it apart and had the hollow pieces riveted to my belt. 
empty hearts play no music. He would have liked that. Every time I catch floral notes in whiskey, I have to remind myself they'll never let him out. I hope he's dead. I wonder if that coin is still buried in the road. And welcome back. Like I said, I love the shades of grey that our characters were sketched out in in this one. Grell is a bastard, an utter bastard, an emotionally and physically abusive man. And yet, he's about to sacrifice himself to save Carlina. She is the victim of Grell's abuse, but I love that she has agency in this story and betrays him. I also appreciate that we see how she's been haunted by some of the awful decisions she's been thrust into in the past. And I have to kind of wonder if we'll continue to see her haunted, perhaps by other ghosts in the future. Here's what Setsu had to say about it. I wanted to write a swashbuckling womanizer who was also a woman. When I stopped to think about why someone would be so carefree, the immediate answer was because she never wanted to feel anything ever again. These are the events that led to that story. This is a story about trauma and how even the strongest people can crumble. We know Carlia can fly through rigging with no fear and shoot like an old West hero, but that wasn't enough to protect her from guilt. We know how Carlia loved and looked up to Grell, but that wasn't enough to keep her from hating him. If she had been the tiniest bit more mature, if he had been the slightest bit more understanding, none of this would have happened. But worlds turn on a dime or a coin, if you will. These are mistakes they'll both have to live with. She won, but she'll never really be free. Thanks for all that, Satsu. Okay, let's go out into a different kind of rigging. The administrative kind. Authors, podcast is now closed to general submissions. We will be opening again for submissions in the new year. However, as I mentioned last week... We do have a special submission window for Artemis Rising that's open right now. That is, in February, that's when the event will be, we, Escape Pod and Pseudopod, are going to be devoting a whole month to shining the spotlight on women in genre literature. And at Podcastle, we're going to be devoting the entire month to original fantasy fiction. So, if you identify as a female author, and that sounds like something you'd be interested in, do check out our submission guidelines at podcastle.org. While you're there, regardless of whether or not you're going to be subbing a story to us in the future, might I suggest you consider donating? The thing with original fiction is, it's a lot more costly for us to produce. We'd like to start paying professional rates for our stories. We want to make sure we take care of our authors and pay them what our industry considers professional. Which is honestly pretty minimal, but it's better than the standard rate that we're paying for a regular reprints. For originals, we'd like to give something a bit extra. So, please, help us out. Consider donating. Don't bury your coins. Pass them along to us. Thanks. Feedback this week is from Patricia Russo's The Old Woman With No Teeth. A charming, semi-modern fantasy about an old witch who wants children and adopts the most unlikeliest of all, 
This was voiced by our Sons of Buttery Thunder themselves, Wilson Fowley and M.K. Hobson. And I think it's safe to say it was a success. As someone who has listened to it with my children, yes, I think I'm qualified to make that assessment. Trish M. said, I'd say this episode was adorable, except that the old woman with no teeth would probably smite me. True, probably so. And Danuli said, I had the absolute pleasure of listening to this yesterday during my lunchtime walk. I work in a very large industrial park, and I've gotten into the habit of taking long walks while listening to either podcasts or audiobooks. And this was the first time that I was actually a bit self-conscious as the cars drove by. I was literally laughing out loud, wide grin, full of teeth and all. I had to look a bit unstable. I like the memoir style for stories, and this for me was a new twist on it. The old woman with no teeth is a fantastic character. I love cranky old women who aren't quite as cranky as they appear to be. I'm going to imagine she and the scribbler having many years of companionable banter ahead of them, perhaps even together caring for the children. Then later on, Danuli threatened to pout until all the Podcastle crew got into a studio live. Sounds fun to me. And those pounce went on to either sponsor an upcoming episode or destroy it. I'm not really sure which. Danuli, are you sure you have teeth? Thanks very much for those comments. Whatever you thought of this week's story, why don't you get yourself all dressed up and get yourself tangled in the interwebs of our forum. Let us know what you thought of it. Visit us at forum.escapeartist.net. We promise not to stick you in a box or cut you down with words or smack your fingers. Unless you're a troll, of course. We don't trek with trolls. But you? You're cool. So, if you want to discuss fantasy, science fiction, horror, everything in between and out with other intelligent folk, come on by. We'll see you there. That's our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Associate Editors LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, Arun Jiwa, and Sarah Goldman, Sound Producer Peter Wood, and your editors, Anna Schwind and myself, Dave Thompson, Thank you very much for hanging out with us and letting us share this story with you. We'll be back next week with a veritable full cast feast for Thanksgiving. Poor Peter's been slaving in the kitchen, basting that turkey, filling those pies. Hmm. Maybe even a bit of flash, too. We'll see you then. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote this week is from Oscar Wilde, who said, A good friend will always stab you in the front. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.